You're listening to Tech Tank, a bi-weekly podcast from the Brookings Institution, exploring the most consequential technology issues of our time. From racial bias and algorithms to the future of work, Tech Tank takes big ideas and makes them accessible. Thanks for joining our Brookings Tech Tank podcast. I'm Daryl West, Senior Fellow in the Center for Technology Innovation at the Brookings Institution. With 2024 right around the corner, there are questions as to how technology will unfold and what actions governments will take on technology policy. We are seeing dramatic advances in generative AI, but concerns about how it and other developments will be regulated and what it means for questions such as fairness, privacy, transparency, and security. To discuss these issues, I am pleased to be joined by my colleague, Nicole Turner-Lee. She is the director of the Brookings Center for Technology Innovation and the author of a forthcoming Brookings book entitled Digitally Invisible. We will discuss what to expect in the coming year and what people should watch for from Capitol Hill and the administration. So, Nicole, welcome to our Brookings Tech Tank podcast. I know, Daryl. I mean, when was the last time the two of us were on the same recording? Hey. <laughs> I think we are overdue. You're right. I know we are. So I know you are straight from Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer's hearing on AI. So let's start with that topic. What issues came up in regard to AI and how do you think Congress will respond? So this was an interesting experience. I think what the senator is doing is really interesting. And if people are following it, he's essentially organizing these interdisciplinary cross-industry conversations that are allowing uh, different stakeholders to communicate their you know, response, their research, their opinion on um, various topics. And so the one that I was particularly involved in addressed uh, the age-old question of generative AI and copyright, as well as transparency and explainability when it comes to AI systems. But I know he has previously done ones on privacy and liability, elections, among other topics. And I think, you know, they're going to be doing another one before the end of the year. With that being said, you know, I think in the cordialness of these conversations, because there were no journalists or cameras per se, you know, recording the conversation in real time, what really came up is that we are all struggling to figure out what part of these systems to regulate. And what do I mean by that? In the area of copyright, particularly with generative AI, there was a lot of conversation there and there continues to be a lot of conversation outside of the congressional halls on these inputs and outputs and sort of the free reign access to inputs, whether it's inputs of personal information, inputs of copyrighted uh, and licensed material, inputs that really are inferential from the inputs that I just described, uh, what those look like going into these systems and how they actually come out are of huge concern because I think regulators do not necessarily know what happens once those things are sort of meshed together. They don't know how the stew brews uh, with these AI systems, what they are really concerned about or what the outcomes are, what's the final product. Um, in addition to in the creative industry, you know, those inputs that are licensed and copywritten in terms of how they're actually used and, and, and forcing the uh, development of various models. 
So I think at that conversation that I was in, you know, it is this sort of uh, challenge between defining appropriate inputs and outputs. And then there's this other challenge that I think I was finding in that conversation, as well as the other conversations that I've been in, which is, do we have agile enough um, uh, regulation in its existing form, uh, or do we need to create new regulation? So in the area of copyright, uh, is the fair use doctrine enough? You know, is that something that would need to be relooked at? Uh, in the case of uh, transparency and security of systems, do we have enough, for example, on the civil rights side to ensure that people are not going to experience a variety of harms? So Jara, I kind of left there in a comfortable space because many people are like me trying to figure it out. <laughs> I didn't feel that I was not in my company of the right people. But I do think that that summit, in addition to some previous testimony that I gave uh, before the House Energy and Commerce Committee, are beginning to suggest that this facts-finding period that we've been engaged in for the last couple of years on AI is getting closer to a better understanding of creating you know, just more, more definitional harmonization, as well as pinpointing where people have most concerns. No, that is very interesting. And I think it's great you're being invited to offer your advice on AI. And I hope they take your suggestions seriously because there are lots of problems and we're at the point where we need some action from Congress. And I think the thing that I find interesting about the whole AI area is there seems to be growing concern within Congress on both sides of the political aisle. People are worried about a range of different uh, topics. Uh, I know I've uh, had requests for briefings from probably a dozen times from uh, congressional staffers, both in the House and Senate, on how, uh, you know, what our thoughts are on in terms of things that they should do. So there actually is some surprising bipartisanship that is starting uh, to emerge in Congress. There are, are several bills that already have been introduced. There's additional legislation that is likely to be uh, introduced uh, in the uh, coming months. So I think kind of the old model that we have had towards technology innovation in general, which has been a libertarian stance, kind of a hands-off model, don't regulate it, don't want to destroy innovation, that regime is actually giving way to what I think is going to be much greater public oversight, uh, more regulation. I don't know exactly what form that regulation is going to take, but we're seeing agency enforcement actions. So there's actually a lot uh, percolating in D.C. But people should also keep their eye on what's happening at the state and local level, because we know it's hard for Congress to legislate on any topic, given the polarization and the hyperpartisanship uh, that we see. But there are a number of states where one or the other of the parties are in control. They are actually passing legislation. So, for example, in terms of social media platforms, uh, both uh, Texas and Florida have uh, passed uh, legislation trying to stop what they view as social media companies censoring conservative views. Uh, there are states like California that have passed liberal versions of privacy bills and, uh, uh, and uh, worker protection uh, bills. And so even though it's been hard for Congress to legislate and introduce no rules here, state and local governments are actually moving ahead. So there's a lot going on. And then, of course, the other thing people should keep in mind is there are a number of judicial cases that are uh, 
making their way uh, through the courts. And so people need to keep their eye on judges. You know, in the absence of congressional action, judges actually are going to play a substantial role in the future of tech policy because they're going to make decisions that then become uh, the law of the land. I think this is actually a little risky because it's often more extreme cases that generate lawsuits. And so judges are actually making decisions based on what could be unusual circumstances or some type of extreme harm uh, that is uh, that takes uh, place. And, and I think in general, it's not good to make public policy based on extreme cases. But when I kind of look at Congress, state and local government, of course, there's actually a lot going on. So I do think 2024 is going to be a very uh, eventful uh, year in the history of a lot of these uh, types of innovations. I like what you're talking about, Daryl, when it comes to states and localities, because I think in the past, because of the uh, the complacency of Congress, we have seen states sort of come in and enact privacy laws, which now are becoming impediments when we try to come up with a national standard. And we've also seen states and localities sort of put some guardrails around certain technologies, uh, New York City and hiring algorithms. We've seen like Washington State and other places when it comes to facial recognition use. So I think you're right. You know, states are going to start if Congress doesn't do anything right, beginning to come up with their own regulatory frameworks, which could be interesting as they sort of regulate whole systems or whole ecosystems like social media in ways that are sort of conflicting with what the federal government is trying to do, which I don't know about you, that kind of worries me because just like I said with the summit, it appears that Congress is trying to do some homework, but they're just not going fast enough to come up with the, you know, the submission of the assignment. That is an important point. And I do think that state action eventually is going to either encourage or perhaps even force national action because companies don't want to end up in a situation where in the United States they face 50 different sets of rules because states are passing laws and and having contradictory stances on uh, privacy, security, human safety, and uh, so companies on. don't want to build a different AI system for Illinois versus Texas. Like they want one system in the United States and uh, systems that also can be deployed outside the country. So interestingly, as states become more aggressive in regulating, the tech companies are put in a situation where they actually need national standards and national laws. So I think that is actually going to push uh, Congress uh, further in the regulatory uh, direction as well. Yeah, I agree. I agree on that one. Here, here. Now, AI is not the only topic likely to be important in 2024. We also are paying attention to the implementation of Biden's infrastructure legislation, which includes major efforts to close the digital divide. And I know, Nicole, uh, this is the topic of your forthcoming uh, book, uh, which is a great book, by the way. I've read it, and I'm uh, sure people are going to be very interested in what she has to say on this. But how is the president's infrastructure implementation going? And are we going to make progress on closing that digital divide? You know, I think it's so interesting that you say that I was on a panel conversation the other day and someone said, you know, I really think that the Biden administration is actually going to be the ones to close the divide. And as you know, I argue my book, uh, that's sort of what Clinton said <laughs> early on in the process, followed by a whole of, uh, uh, other administrations that um, have not yet been able to solve this issue. For those of you who are interested, my book will be out next February, March, Brookings Press. And you can find that at your local bookstore or online. You know, Daryl, I had to do that. It's a shameless plug, but I got to sell this book as many ways as possible. Listen, 
I think the president's infrastructure bill is going as planned, given that we had a very limited time to really think through the digital divide that we're trying to solve. And I think many people went into the infrastructure bill, particularly on the side of broadband, thinking that this is about what happened during the pandemic, right? That people couldn't get to school or they couldn't work or they couldn't get health care. So we've got to solve this digital divide to ensure that if we ever have something like this again, we're not going to see these same inequalities. And here's where I think we're going to have some challenges in completely getting this right. You know, first and foremost, it was a fact that we were all significantly challenged by the movement from analog in-person systems to those that were primarily driven online. And for those people who before the pandemic were not connected, uh, the worst of the worst came out. And we saw that, you know, they were really, you know, desolate when it came to having connectivity or what I call digitally invisible. But one of the things that I think what we're trying to do as part of the infrastructure plan is to replicate what's worked in the past on the deployment side, which is to build it and they will come. And on the affordability side, which has had really good traction, I mean, more than 21 million people have signed up for the uh, affordable connectivity program, which is one of the mandates of the broadband part of the uh a bill because it allows for uh, low cost access, particularly among those new networks that we're building. You know, I, I just think that we're doing the doing stuff the same way, which we have to be careful of because new technology is really powering. You know, not just the traditional things of healthcare and education and employment, but it's actually creating a digital economy that if we don't get everybody online, it will become primarily um, exclusive uh, to those individuals that have access. And, you know, in this race to get people connected, we might be connecting them, for example, to the front stoop, but we may not be getting them into the living room. And that's something that keeps me up at night. But I do think NTIA has tried to capture some of those synergies in this process. You know, Secretary Davidson calls this a movement and not a moment, which I understand. And right now, like all of the state digital equity plans on deployment are online. Some of them are very long and I have not been able to get through all of them, if not one of them, because of the length of these plans. And there's a public comment period for us to look at them. But I still think that we may have the uh, potential to look through those plans from, again, a very time-constrained experience of the pandemic and not necessarily a longer tail experience of what does it mean to live in a, a country where you don't have access to tools that are no longer available to you in person? Um, how does it feel to have a good quality of life in a country where not having access is pretty correlated with housing segregation and discrimination? You know, what does it feel like to want to live in a rural community, but yet you don't have access and, and having that choice uh, can be painful because there are things that you cannot do uh, or jobs that you cannot take or productivity that you cannot realize. So, you know, to your answer, you know, a long answer to your short question, um, time will tell. <laughs> We've got a few more years before we can say that this program was entirely successful. Uh, there has been some conversation on whether or not we're evaluating it correctly. I know there's a lot of activity. I've had the opportunity to talk to several digital equity liaisons as part of NTIA's open sessions. Uh, but I do think 
you know, this is going to be one of those things that if we don't do some out of the box thinking a little bit more, that we may not be necessarily reimagining digital inclusion the way that society looks today. So, Daryl, what do you think? Did I say everything? Uh, yes. I don't think I need to respond to what you said. I mean, you're the expert on that. Well, you know, you're the expert on this other topic, I'm not going to lie, which is disinformation. And so let's pick that up. I mean, I think I've I've pretty much said everything I want to say. And, you know, that's in my book and what I've been doing on Digital Divide. But I know you're paying attention to disinformation in the upcoming election and how much impact it's going to have. Describe that problem and what you're finding there. Uh, you know, AI, Digital Divide. And now let's talk about misinformation, disinformation. I mean, it is a big problem, especially in relation to the upcoming election. I mean, I've uh, got on record several times as saying that I expect a tsunami of disinformation in 2024. I think there are a variety of uh, examples we've already seen on both sides of the political aisle of people systematically distorting information. We're starting to see fake videos and fake audio tapes uh, that are put out. Some of them actually are funny, like humorous and comedians are starting to jump in on this. But the risk is that we could end up seeing uh, fake audio or videotapes of candidates saying and doing things that they didn't actually do or say. And that, uh, I think, creates a great risk, especially since we expect the presidential election to be very close. Like, you know, if this election comes down to 50,000 votes in Georgia, Arizona, and Wisconsin, which is quite possible, disinformation could have a great impact on the election if it's disinformation that decides the vote of those last minute decision makers. So I think it's something everybody should worry about. The other thing that people should be quite concerned with is the role of foreign entities in spreading disinformation. We all know that 2024 is a high stakes election, both from the standpoint of domestic policy and foreign policy. And foreign countries have also noticed the same thing, like they see the stakes as being very high. Uh, like Putin knows that if he, if he can get people elected in 2024 who are willing to cut off aid to Ukraine, he basically wins the war. Uh, and so when you look at the number of countries that both see it as high stakes and they have a personal interest in the outcome, and several of these countries already have a favored candidate, this becomes very risky for the United States. You know, countries such as Russia, China, Iran, North Korea, the Saudis, even Israel, like, you know, what happens uh, next year is going to have huge consequences for uh, every one of those uh, countries. So we do need to insist on enough measures in place that there's monitoring of the disinformation, taking down accounts when it's clearly false and blatant in terms of the kind of information that's being communicated, and paying particular attention to the role of these foreign entities. Because we want, we should all demand that the 2024 election be decided by Americans, not by Russians, not by the Chinese, not by uh, anyone else around the world. It's our election and we should be the ones who decide it. Now, in terms of what we can do about it, there actually are some bills that already been introduced in Congress and there are some other ones uh, percolating, particularly on the issue of AI-generated content in campaign communications. Some of the bills uh, basically are requiring disclosure of AI-generated content. Disclosure is a principle that's been applied both in the campaign advertising area as well as in campaign finance. Uh, like we all, when we're watching TV ads, 
can see that disclosure on who paid for the ad, uh, which is important for voters to know the source of the information. In the campaign finance area, disclosure is important as well. Uh, candidates have to disclose contributions of $200 or more in federal uh, races. And so it's important for voters to know when AI is generating uh, content and when AI uh, is uh, presenting deceptive information. So there are bills pending uh, that would mandate disclosure of AI-generated content and campaign communications. Uh, and I think that those bills actually have a chance of passing because both Republicans and Democrats are worried that AI is going to get used against them. So when you have paranoia on both sides, that actually creates a possible formula uh, for uh, legislation. But I think we need to go way beyond disclosure. I mean, disclosure would help. It's good for voters to have more information so they can uh, judge the source of uh, those uh, communications. But there also are some bills pending that try and address the potential harms of AI in the upcoming election. There could be harm in terms of fake videos and fake audio tapes uh, that basically smear uh, candidates. There could be consumer fraud and financial fraud that gets perpetuated on voters based on AI. We know that criminals have migrated towards digital crime because so much money now flows through uh, bank accounts, electronic transmissions, uh, fundraising appeals, and so on. So consumers have to be aware there's likely to be a lot of consumer fraud associated with the campaigns in the coming year. AI is going to be part of that. And so we actually need to take some of the provisions that already exist in the bricks and mortar world and apply them to the digital space such that digital financial crimes get treated as crimes and get penalized appropriately. So I think there are several things that uh, we can do. We're doing research to kind of look at other things that need to be uh, done. But we do need to take this disinformation problem seriously. But you know, I have a question for you, because one of the things that I've been hearing, which uh, is going to make some of these um, uh, ways to sort of tackle misinformation and disinformation, will be the sophistication of these bad actors when it comes to authenticating some of the contents. I'm curious, just while you're there, Daryl, because this is a question I want to have for you on like watermarking that's been embedded in some of the legislation or the use of generative AI in terms of its greater depth of extracting voice and video and text. You know, what do you think about things like that? Are we going to be able to catch up with those things or are these tools going to be effective? I think watermarking is an effective way to deal with some aspects of disinformation. It's actually interesting if you look at Biden's recent executive order on AI, he is now mandating uh, watermarking uh, on communications that come out of all of the federal agencies. So there has to be a digital mark on those publications showing that this came from the Department of Commerce, the Department of Treasury, or you know wh whichever agency is putting it out, such that people know the source of that. And we can authenticate uh, kind of material that's coming out of the federal government. I think this is a potentially useful reform that could be applied more broadly. Like if things were watermarked, we would know the source of uh, many uh, documents. And if there's a problem, then you know where to go back to try and mitigate uh, that problem. So I do think uh, watermarking would be a good way to go. Yeah, no, that's interesting because like a lot of people say the same thing. And I think the technology itself has been proven to outlast 
uh, many technologies when it comes to authentication. Uh, but for those of you that are watching and listening, uh, you know, watermarking is just giving us some providence on where this content originated and it's helping to track that content throughout its life cycle and its iteration and where it lands up. So yeah, I'm, I'm curious to see, cause I think that's going to be a huge part of coming up with a pragmatic solution to this, you know? So we also are seeing interest in tech subjects such as bias and the degree to which technology encourages and facilitates bias, safety, kind of the impact on human beings, and transparency, like how to make AI-based decision-making more understandable and explainable uh, to the general public. So how might Congress think about these issues? Are there ways that they could respond to improve the situation for consumers here? Yeah, you know, I think this whole idea of bias, safety, and transparency are really interesting, right? Because they used to be parsed uh, and separate in the discussions when it came to, you know, bias in terms of racial disparities or civil rights uh, issues um, versus safety as far as like cybersecurity and vulnerabilities that may be baked into systems. And then transparency as it was related to explainability or interpretability systems. And I think now we're actually seeing these things connected with some very similar um, uh, ways in which we can address them. Um, I'm a huge fan of disclosures. And I've been in my work pushing for some type of disclosure, whether it be a labeling system or something similar to the Energy Star rating uh, incentive that we have when it comes to consumer appliances, where people have that big yellow sticker and they know that this particular appliance has been tested through a multi-stakeholder process. I think we should see something very similar when it comes to AI, where there's some consumer confidence and trust that this is a system where things like bias and security um, and other explainable tools have been embedded in the design of these models. Um, obviously, uh, these are big buckets that may require very interdisciplinary conversations with some aspect of it being pointed to self-regulation where companies come up with better technical cadences that maybe use less data or don't retain as much data versus, you know, consumers having some level of engagement or feedback on this. I mean, it's my opinion that if we want these systems to appeal to everyday people like my grandmother, you know, they have to be uh, policies. There have to be policies that are easy to understand and read and not policies that are just written for technologists. Now, of course, you know, you've got to deal with the outputs. And this is where I would say the nature of the type of model is going to matter. Is this a high impact model that carries with it not just bias, but concerns around civil rights, like applying for a mortgage or getting credit on a car for a car or being denied um, application to a college or university? You know, for me, those bring different markers that Congress needs to think through. And maybe that's an area that Congress needs to hang out in, right? Because the high impact algorithms is where we have a regulatory um, regime in place and federal agencies that have some knowledge to do that work. But then there's this other side of it. And I think this is an interesting question that I deal with, which is, you know, 
the extent to which transparency involves people opting out of using these technological systems. And that goes back to my conversation on the digital divide. You know, we cannot get out of these systems. And so when it comes to purchasing or being able to book an airline ticket or to apply for a public benefit, you know, technology has become the go-to and leveraging AI in a way that ensures that we're not creating additional divides when it comes to digital access will be important for Congress as well. Um, What that looks like from a legislative perspective, I'm still not sure. I mean, I think I call it like, Daryl, incremental and long tail congressional action. Incremental action could be disclosures of some sort, uh, having some standards in place, being able to bolster the uh, risk management framework of the National Institutes of Standards, NIST, as people um, have been talking about, and maybe some longer tail solutions could be having better conversation on recourse for individuals harmed by AI systems, like people who get picked up by facial recognition technology by law enforcement and then have to pay a huge fine to get out of jail, even though that was not them. Um, or ways in which we sort of think about moving away from indemnifying uh, tech companies from full responsibility of consumer harms. Um, I know Congressman Ted Lieu has been thinking about like maybe a blue ribbon commission to sort of address these issues um, and to come up with the best of the best when you have a multi-stakeholder uh, work group. And I also know, you know, we're looking at the EU pretty closely with their recent uh, AI Act to see if there are things that we can lift from that legislation to put here. I mean, ultimately, you know, I say this all the time, we do need privacy legislation as a start, you know, that is not necessarily just about AI, but just giving us some guidance on what people can collect about us and our communities and our companies. Um, but for me, I think Congress has to sort of take a stance at this that allows them to make some incremental progress uh, as well as making some long tail decisions. And I think I read something today actually in Politico about you know how most people feel about AI. And for the most part, people do care about this, right? We hear about it on our news. We hear about it on our internet feeds, you know? And so Congress needs to do something because like you said, it's going to go back to the states and localities and that's not going to give us reasonable standards and reasonable recourse, you know, going forward. Our colleague, Cam Carey, would be so proud of you for calling for a national privacy bill since that is his personal passion and he's worked uh, very hard on that. And we have uh, things on the Brookings website uh, uh, talking about how to uh, do that. But the other thing that I want to point out, uh, like especially in the bias area, I'm particularly concerned about the high risk applications, uh, meaning applications that affect a million or more consumers. So you know, I'm not really interested in regulating the mom and pop operations, you know, the college students, the people in their basements who are uh, trying to experiment with algorithms. We should be concerned with the large scale applications that are reaching a million people or more. And particularly in areas such as finance, housing, and employment, there's a lot of AI generated decision making now. So we need to make sure that those decisions are operating fairly and equitably. There are a number of financial institutions today that are making loan decisions and mortgage decisions based on algorithms. The question is, how are they operating? How are they making decisions? What kind of data are they incorporating? And are their decisions fair and equitable? You know, we have fair lending practices for bricks and mortar uh, types of decisions. We need to apply that same type of reasoning uh, in uh, uh, the digital space as well, because 
The last thing we want to have is digital redlining uh, take place. Uh, That would be traumatic for just uh, far too many consumers. Yeah, that's something that, um, I mean, for people who listen to us regularly and consume all of our products at Tech Tank, you know, we're going to be launching an AI equity lab that is actually going to look at many of those high impact scenarios with the intent of doing exactly what you're talking about there, right? Assessing risk, uh, understanding the existing regimes that are applicable to managing that risk, uh, coming up with, you know, either existing or new policy recommendations that can be very pragmatic. And most importantly, just helping uh, legislators and other policymakers think through just the long tail consequences of not addressing this area. And my hope is that we're going to do this, not in big, large groups, but like workshop it among six to 10 people who actually work in the space. So technologists alongside, you know, professionals who work in healthcare, criminal justice, education, employment, um, who are working on, you know, democracy in our country. For me, it's like, Those conversations have not happened. And to your point, we know that we've got some things in the, you know, in in the queue that we can pull from, but we don't have the right people sitting at the table who will also know about those things as well. I I am really excited about your AI equity lab. I think there are problems in that area that need to be addressed. And it's great that you're going to be undertaking research that will help help people understand both the problems and also develop uh, uh, possible solutions to uh, dealing with those. You know, one of the area, Daryl, though, I want to say, come on now, competition. We have not talked about this in this call. You know that, right? Competition policy. Um, Several court cases are out there, like you mentioned, enforcement actions. What are you watching in those areas? And what does that also tell us about the Biden administration? I had to do that, Daryl, because I don't know about you, but sometimes like I'm talking about, you know, chewing gum and then AI comes up and then all of a sudden I'm not talking about chewing gum anymore. <laughs> I'm talking about all AI. Tell us a little bit more about competition policy, because I think people who are listening want to know what that's going to mean, too, because it seems like the tech companies, to a certain extent, got off the hook on some other issues here. Well, the prevailing regulatory approach for many years has been a hands-off stance on the tech companies. And, you know, 25 years ago, it was understandable. The tech companies were small. Uh, The internet was kind of an experimental platform. We didn't know how it was going to unfold. But of course, now, like these tech companies are multi-billion dollar companies, or some of them even have become trillion dollar companies. And so the issue of competition policy has emerged as an important area. Uh, Nicole, as you mentioned, the Biden administration has undertaken several enforcement actions against large tech companies. Uh, They have cases uh, pending against Google and Amazon. And the thread that runs through these cases is allegations of anti-competitive behavior, that companies are using their large platforms to basically advantage themselves, their own products, their own services, or uh, goods uh, that they are uh, selling on their uh, platforms. So it kind of shows that even though Congress so far has not been particularly able to get its act together and actually pass legislation in the technology area, on the administrative side, the Biden administration actually has taken a pretty tough stance uh, on some of these tech issues, but particularly, I think, in terms of uh, competition policy. So I think it's going to be very interesting to see how judges rule on these cases. Of course, we all remember uh, the famous Clinton administration case against Microsoft in the uh, late uh, 90s that resulted in uh, enforcement actions against uh, that company. 
Are we going to see a situation uh, like that uh, that emerge uh, with some of the uh, current large uh, platforms? But Nicole, I'm just curious what you see happening in these areas and what we should be watching for. No, I agree with you. I mean, I think that, um, you know, competition policy is going to continue to sort of be very pervasive in this conversation. It's not something that's going to go away. And we're going to see more of the DOJ come in and maybe assume um, some authority over some of these cases as they evolve. I think on the issue of algorithmic discrimination and other areas that we're beginning to see, you know, we're at a stage now where the technology is a little bit more mature, more people are actually using it. And we'll probably see more people sort of come to the forefront in terms of the harms that they've experienced to elicit um, a, a much more granular view into the state of competition policy for these technologies and whether or not, you know, markets or groups of people are being excluded. Um, you know, I, I still think, though, we are still in a quagmire when it comes to competition policy in terms of are we still using the right standard, right, um, in terms of tech. Um, I was just in a conversation not too long ago, you know, my work on whether or not variables like racial equity should be involved. Uh, Mark McCarthy actually wrote a really great book um, on digital regulation where he speaks to competition policy. Uh, Tom Wheeler has another great book. Listen, folks, if you're not following Tech Tank and Center for Technology Innovation, and, you know, I don't know where you are at because we got really great books coming out. But um, he's also, you know, wrote something about this this shift that we're seeing in the digital sector that I think is appending a lot of the models that we've had that were created around the time of the rail cart, the you know rail cart and telegraph. So you know, coming into this new year, I would suggest, like you, we're going to just see more people getting involved with this and finding parts of the ecosystem that they can sort of. Uh, critique under this guise compared to like what we just talked about, like civil rights, human rights, technical cadence. Competition is going to be, I think, an area that is going to gain some interest among uh, legislators and regulators who need to find another reason to uh, uh, get on, you know, some of the uh, insufficiencies and inadequacies and harms of tech. (laughs) I agree with that. Uh, I think 2024 is going to be an exciting year in terms of technology policy. There's a lot happening in Congress and the administrative agencies uh, out of the White House and state and local government and the courts. And people need to pay attention to all of those uh, things. Uh, Nicole, it was great to be on the same podcast with you. I enjoyed our conversation and look forward to a tremendous year coming up. Well, listen, Daryl, you just scared me. I I, uh, just thought about 2024 and you just said something that didn't sit too well with me, which is there's going to be a lot more. (laughs) And you remember, there's going to be an election, too, in 2024. So I think uh, for those of you listening, we will be back in terms of talking about these issues. Hopefully, Daryl, we'll do our uh, traditional what to expect in 2024 in tech policy. What do you think? It sounds good to me. And I want to thank everybody for joining our Tech Tank uh, podcast, where we take uh, big bits in tech conversations and make them into palatable bites. We hope that you enjoyed this conversation and many others as part of our show. We appreciate your listening. Don't forget to follow our Tech Tank blog for more details on many of the issues that we discuss on this podcast. You can find us at uh, brookings.edu. And thank you very much for tuning in. Thank you, Daryl. This is great. Thank you for listening to Tech Tank, a series of roundtable discussions and interviews with technology experts and policymakers. For more conversations like this, subscribe to the podcast and sign up to receive the Tech Tank newsletter, 
for more research and analysis from the Center for Technology Innovation at Brookings.